You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. It's definitely becoming increasingly standard for most every business across sectors to have cyber insurance in place whenever they're dealing with large amounts of data or consumer data. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben has the story of a lawsuit from some WeChat users. I wonder if the FTC is cracking down on artificial intelligence. And later in the show, my conversation with Paul Mora and David Nevetta from Cooley with thoughts on the importance of cyber insurance. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, let's jump into some stories here. What do you have for us this week? My story comes from the Washington Post in their technology section by uh, Jeannie Whalen. And this is about a lawsuit emanating from plaintiffs in the state of California suing the parent company of the WeChat app, uh, which is a Mm. Chinese tech giant called Tencent. They are suing this app and its parent company over what the Washington Post describes as alleged censorship and surveillance, um, basically a violation of their free speech and privacy rights. And this is a civil lawsuit taking place in Uh, state court in the state of California. Hmm. What caught my eye about this case is that the plaintiffs are wishing to stay anonymous. They do not want to be named in the civil complaint. And the Hmm. reason for that is they are concerned that Chinese authorities, because this is a Chinese company, could pressure Tencent, the parent company here, to turn over their private information. And that, of course, could expose these plaintiffs to harassment or even worse, considering that we're talking about a totalitarian government here. Right. The law firm representing the defendant in this case, which is the company, uh, is fighting against this request for anonymity and with good reason. They're basically saying they can't mount a proper defense in this case if they don't have full access to information. You know, if they Mm. can't file an answer with specific facts because they don't know who these actual plaintiffs are, then that's going to be a major inhibition on their case. So Mm. before this case moves forward, it has to go uh, in front of a a California state judge, and they're going to have to decide if the plaintiffs are required to reveal themselves for this lawsuit to continue. Uh, Hmm. And so this is just a really interesting uh, example on anonymity among plaintiffs and about, you know, one of the reasons why it's difficult uh, to pursue a cause of action against a Chinese tech company, frankly. Hmm. 
Now, what about uh, a right to face your accusers? Uh, is that only a criminal law, or what are we talking about with that? Yeah, so that's a criminal law concept. Uh, so mm. in this, since this is a civil case, that particular doctrine does not apply here. I will say, though, it is the general practice of courts across the country as a default that all plaintiffs and all parties in all cases are de-anonymized. And there are very few exceptions. And you, as I said, you can understand why that is. In order to actually adjudicate a lawsuit, you're going to have to know personal information on people, what their name is, what they look like. You know, if you're trying to assess injuries, you're going to need information on perhaps their financial earnings or other pertinent information. You know, the default in civil cases is to rule against anonymity. There are a very small number of exceptions some of them are things like cases involving minor children, uh, which we can understand that's not uh, at issue here. Um, and then in other instances, you have cases where there might be a security threat against the individual. So we're talking about people who are involved in organized crime, something like that. Hmm. Neither of those scenarios is per se relevant in this case. And the you know potential harm that these plaintiffs are alleging through their attorney is theoretical. I mean, they can't prove beyond mere allegation that the Chinese government is going to abuse them or harass them if their names are revealed. So, you know, the judge just kind of has to work with the information that he or she has. I'm not sure if it's a he or she. And, you know, I think this could end up being a pretty groundbreaking case in terms of the question of anonymity when you're suing giant companies based in a totalitarian communist country. Mm -hmm. How does it all come into play that, uh, as this article points out, it, the plaintiffs are a mix of U.S. and Chinese citizens. They reside in California. It, and is it because WeChat does business in California that they are able to be sued in, Cal in the state of California? Yes? Yes. Uh, that is why the state of California has jurisdiction over the defendant. Yeah, they have personal jurisdiction over uh, WeChat, who does business, obviously, in California. I believe they have an office there if I'm okay. not mistaken. Uh, mm. So they're certainly eligible to be sued under our uh, civil procedure laws in the state of California, for sure. The whole thing strikes me as a bit odd. And I, I, how do you suppose their anonymity will affect their ability to go through with this lawsuit? If you're claiming things like censorship and surveillance, you're going to have to have testimony to that effect. Right. How do you prove that? So you can have anonymous testimony, but at some point there's going to have to be some sort of revealing information. Otherwise, they're not going to have a case. And mm -hmm. so if I was the defendant in this case, I would file a motion to dismiss the lawsuit. You have to allege something to sustain a civil suit where there could possibly be a violation of the law, right? And as a plaintiff, if you're anonymous and you cannot specify those allegations, you know, to a level where it is only applicable to you, the plaintiffs, and not to everybody else, then I think that would be grounds for the judge to throw away that lawsuit. So what I expect, this is going to kind of be a cold war between the parties here, the longer the plaintiff uh, pursues the strategy of maintaining anonymity, the more likely it is that the defendant is just going to repeatedly file motions to dismiss until the judge sort of says, we, we can't adjudicate this case unless we have some information on the plaintiff. Now, the plaintiff's attorney, I think very reasonably, is saying they're not trying to be difficult here. They want this lawsuit to proceed. They're confident in their claims, but they're saying that we're comfortable in America, but you haven't dealt with communist China. The fear is real. Right. 
and they have seen it in other cases. They're worried that even if the judge does grant an anonymity here, that uh, the parent company will somehow find out the names of these plaintiffs, release them to the Chinese government, uh, and there could be harsh consequences. Right, for the family members who are back in China. Absolutely. And so that's an area of of great concern. So it's really just a a quagmire here. I don't know Mm -hmm. how you can come up with an equitable solution where the court can hear their claims, but can do so without the plaintiffs identifying even nominal personal information that would be required to sustain a lawsuit, especially if one of the allegations is a violation of privacy. Uh, I I think it's going to be very difficult for the plaintiffs here. And I think at some point the court is going to go to them and say, you have to reveal something or your lawsuit is going to be dismissed. Wow. Yeah. What a, what an interesting uh, combination of circumstances. It'll be interesting to see how this one plays out for Mm -hmm. sure. It's a good one. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have links to uh, that story in the show notes. Of course, my, my story this week, actually, uh, I, what drew my attention to this was a, was a tweet from a gentleman named Ryan Callow. He's at R. Callow on Twitter. And uh, his tweet says, whoa, whoa, whoa. An official FTC blog post by a staff attorney noting that, quote, the FTC Act prohibits unfair or deceptive practices that would include the sale or use of, for example, racially biased algorithms. I'll say to just to start that any tweet where you say, whoa, 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 and the third whoa is capitalized, you know that has to be serious. (laughs) It's some serious stuff here, right? Yeah. So so this led me to this publication that the Federal Trade Commission put out, and it's titled Aiming for Truth, Fairness, and Equity in Your Company's Use of AI. And it's written by Elisa Jilson. Some of the other commentary in these tweets, what they're getting at is that they think this could be a shot across the bow, that the FTC is signaling that they are going to start holding companies accountable for the types of things that their AI does. Uh, They got some quotes from this publication here. They say, uh, keep in mind that if you don't hold yourself accountable, the FTC may do it for you. For example, if your algorithm results in credit discrimination against a protected class, You could find yourself facing a complaint alleging violations of the FTC Act and ECOA. And so what what folks are reading this and they're saying that uh, this is pretty strong language from the FTC. Another quote here, it says, don't exaggerate what your algorithm can do or whether it can deliver fair or unbiased results. Under the FTC Act, your statements to business customers and consumers alike must be truthful, non-deceptive and backed up by evidence. Imagine that, Ben. Uh, yeah, uh, that that seems out of the question in our legal system, right? <laughs> what do you make of this? What was do do you agree that this is perhaps signaling from the FTC? I do, and I think this is worthy of the three woes that we saw in this tweet. Actually, uh, <laughs> the guy who tweeted is a University of Washington law professor, so it's not just okay. some dude on Twitter. First of all, I'll say that this is not something I was expecting to see from the FTC. It's really a striking blog post, actually. I probably was once aware that the FTC had a blog, but I have to admit I'm not a regular consumer uh, of of their blog. And it's certainly not something we would have seen in the previous presidential administration, because this really does have a racial justice element to it. They're saying that not only are you doing something immoral, potentially, or are you alienating your potential customer base by having biased algorithms, you will get in legal trouble. There could be criminal penalties or civil penalties or criminal sanctions. So that's really a direction that this agency has not taken in the past. I think the statutory language 
backs them up. So the FTC Act prohibits unfair, deceptive practices. And as this blog post says, that includes the sale uh, of racially biased algorithms. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's the Fair Credit Reporting Act. So if one of your company's algorithms leads to denying people employment, credit, housing, et cetera, et cetera, then you have violated the Fair Credit Reporting Act and its sister, as you mentioned, ECOA, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. And that applies not just to race, but a bunch of other protected classes like sex, marital status, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I think this blog post highlights is it's the responsibility of companies to watch out for discriminatory outcomes. I'm sure there are some organizations who are, you know, intending some sort of discriminating uh, outcome from their algorithm. That is probably Mm -hmm. a tiny minority, maybe 0.1% of all companies that have developed algorithms. Most of them don't think they're they're developing something that's going to lead to racial discrimination. But what this uh, agency is saying in this blog post is that it's your responsibility to make sure that your algorithm doesn't lead to discriminating outcomes. So it's not just uh, about intent. It's about actual outcomes here. Um, They mention a presentation from PrivacyCon 2020. I did not receive an invite, unfortunately. (laughs) Maybe next year you'll be keynoting. (laughs) I I sure hope so. I hope PrivacyCon 2022 is is a real blast. Uh, Yeah. But researchers presented work showing that algorithms developed for benign purposes like healthcare resource allocation and advertising ended up being racially biased. So again, you're coming up with an algorithm not for any discriminatory purpose. You have no intent. But like many things, including artificial intelligence, that leads to unconscious bias and and is illegal uh, because we, as a legal system, can judge discrimination by outcomes and not just by intention. They make the point in this uh, there's a really interesting paragraph here titled Do More Good Than Harm. Uh, basically, it just lays it out. It says, uh, to put in the simplest terms under the FTC Act, a practice is unfair if it causes more harm than good. And they go on to say that, um, you know, they're concerned that some of these algorithms, if they consider things like race or color or religion and sex, it could be the equivalent of digital redlining, you know, the way that uh, they used to have unfair housing practices back in Absolutely. the 60s. I'm reminded of the case we saw a few months back when Apple first came out with their credit card that several people were reporting uh, incidences where uh, you'd have a husband and wife, you know, who had totally blended finances, right. right? It's all just one big shared thing. They live in the same house. Everything's in both people's names. And the husband would apply for an Apple credit card and get, you know, $5,000 worth of credit. And the wife would apply for the credit card and get $1,000 worth of credit. Right, right, (laughs) right. And so clearly something was amiss in the algorithm. And uh, to their credit, I mean, Apple took that seriously and, uh, you know, said, hey, this is is no good. We recognize it and we're going to work to fix it. I don't know how successful they've been at that, but... uh, to me, that's a that's an example of this kind of thing where who knows what's going on under the hood. Yes. And I think it's interesting to see that the FTC is taking that seriously and and certainly signaling that they may come after you if uh, what you're doing doesn't pass their muster. Now, I will say just because there is a discriminatory outcome doesn't mean that you have a per se FTC violation. So, for example, mm. um, I'm charged more for auto insurance than my wife uh, because as a dude— as a guy, right. <laughs> I'm at greater risk for reckless driving, getting in, in accidents, and having to use my insurance. 
that is something just based on risk that is going to be legal without violating uh, FTC regulations. But, you know, if, if there's a pattern in practice and it leads to, you know, particularly when we're talking about things like fair credit reporting, then they are certainly eligible for these criminal and civil penalties. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we will have a link to uh, both uh, Ryan's series of tweets, which has some interesting commentary on this, and then the, uh, the actual FTC post itself. Uh, highly recommended. You check that out. It's a good one. I will also say that the next tweet down in this thread doesn't start with whoa, 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 but starts with holy S. Uh, so you know it must be a big deal. That's right. Well, Ryan doesn't hold back when it comes to expressing himself. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, uh, you can call in. It's 410-618-3720 or send us an email to caveat at com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Paul Mora and David Nevetta. They are both attorneys at the law firm Cooley LLC. Uh, And our conversation centered on uh, where we stand when it comes to cyber insurance, how cyber insurance is evolving, and why it's important for everybody. Here's my conversation with Paul Mora and David Nevetta. I think right now we're at a very interesting point in the cyber insurance uh, world. You know, for a long time, uh, the privacy and data security risks were I would say sort of in gestation. They were real in the sense that we were seeing, you know, certain liabilities, certain types of data breaches, certain types of lawsuits, regulatory actions happen. But, you know, the volume wasn't necessarily huge. The theories of liability and other kind of gotchas that companies would face were not very mature. But I think we are now at a point in time where um, the cyber threat environment is, is very uh, active. It's, it's almost constant. The lawsuits have um, gained legs and plaintiffs uh, are very interested, especially in the United States, to bring class action lawsuits in the privacy and security context. And in Europe and then now increasingly in the U.S., regulators are starting to get um, involved in the game much more frequently and with much more of an impact on companies. So I think that is starting to affect how the cyber market is looking at the availability of coverage, the pricing of coverage and the scope of coverage. Cyber insurance has been available for many years, but as the years have passed, the policies have have gotten more sophisticated and more readily available for more insureds. But one thing that has always been inherently difficult, I think, for 
a lot of insurance carriers that are issuing cyber coverages is just how do you value them? How do you measure the risk? These sorts of cyber risks can be very difficult to measure. And as the years have passed, we're seeing kind of more attention focused on improving that sort of process. Has the product been around long enough and indeed the the vertical been around long enough that we feel like we have, uh, you know, good tables to be able to to accurately set the rates on these sorts of things? Or is that still still a work in progress? Yeah, I haven't been involved in that end of it for a while, but I I still think it's a it's a work in progress. You know, the risks have increased quite a bit, but also, you know, the data associated with these types of risks has also increased. So. You know, at the beginning of cyber insurance, when I was drafting some of these policies, there was, you know, zilch in terms of actuarial data. Um, I think that ha- that has changed significantly. There's there's data now that can be used uh, as part of an underwriting process. Now, not every carrier has the same level of data. I mean, there have been some players in the game since, you know, the early 2000s um, who probably have more experience and, and more ability to forecast risk. So, you know, that's not a level playing field per se. But what we also are actually seeing is sort of um, data collection coming from, you know, more of a security type approach where there are certain carriers who are going in and and running certain types of tools and security kind of um, assessments uh, in more of an automated fashion to be able to assess risk. And, And so we're seeing that on a kind of a scaled basis where, you know, the middle market and smaller businesses who are, who are still targets are now getting access to this type of insurance and, and the other underwriting process is more uh, in a box, but also increasingly more supported by data that security oriented type of uh, practitioners are able to get on behalf of these insurers. Yeah. And, and I think we're going to start to see more innovative types of underwriting processes like that over the next few years. And one example that I think was just recently announced by Munich Re and Allianz, uh, they're working on a partnership with Google to develop a cyber insurance product where insureds who use the Google cloud interface will be able to purchase coverage and the insurers will have more refined data um, and information about their the insured systems because they you know they have access to the Google Cloud. So we're going to start to see more things like that to to help insurance carriers kind of better underwrite and better price their products. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it reminds me of some of those uh, you know consumer insurance companies where if you're willing to put some sort of you know device in your car, that they'll give you a a discount in exchange for keeping track of how off how how you drive. You know, it's a, seems like a, a similar sort of approach. I think we're we're getting to that point, right? I mean, uh, when cyber insurance first kind of came out, the the analog one of the analogs was you know auto insurance. So if if you can prove that you have you know um, certain types of controls in place, like like you can prove that you have a seatbelt in place and your car is in good order, you've got a driver's license, you know, then in theory the premium should go down, right? Um, but obviously, auto insurance has been around for a long, long time. There's a lot of data, a lot of actuarial ability there to, to crunch numbers, and that that hasn't been the case with cyber yet. And arguably, cyber risks are more complex as well, and they're constantly evolving, so that makes it a little harder. But yet, as, as Paul mentioned and as we were talking earlier, um, some of the data is is now available and um, is able to be crunched more readily uh, you know, artificial intelligence is, is playing a role as well in machine learning to be able to crunch and uh, analyze that type of data. 
Uh, so, you know, the, the methods for actually capturing and crunching and, and understanding the information have improved significantly in the last, you know, 15, 20 years. Are people generally able to get the coverage that they need? Is there, how often are you seeing folks who are experiencing some, you know, sticker shock when they go out shopping for this sort of thing? Is is that a reality or, or are these uh, policies falling into line where they're generally pretty affordable? I think more recently there's been more sticker shock. In the past, some of the cyber coverages were very affordable and as a result, there were some insurance carriers who maybe mispriced the policies and were paying out more in claims than they expected, so it wasn't a profitable business. So very recently, cyber policies and cyber coverages have gotten very expensive, and there are less players um, necessarily willing to offer cyber coverage to certain types of companies. If you're a startup, you might have a little bit of difficulty now getting cyber coverage from some of the bigger names. But the, the cyber coverages have been improving as far as how they're worded and the types of offerings that they provide. There are endorsements and types of coverages that are becoming increasingly standard, which is very helpful. That's been a positive development as the cyber insurance industry has kind of progressed over time. It's worth stepping back a few years. So, you know, as I mentioned, there are big players that have been around for 15, 20 years. And I think a lot of second tier type players, even first tier really insurers, you, names you would know, uh, started getting into the market after the, you know, the, the first movers. And for a period of time, there were, you know, it seemed like almost every other week there was a new cyber insurance company or a cyber insurance product coming out hitting every aspect of the market, big, small, medium, startups, uh, banks, healthcare, uh, every sector, every industry. And so at that point, the competition started to become very fierce for the cyber insurance policies. Uh, the premiums went down, the coverage started to expand. There were more and more players willing to, to try to get out there and get some market share. And, and that included by you know providing more coverage, uh, higher limits for less money. I think the market has hardened for some of the reasons we stated earlier. You know, the the threats are are much worse right now. We're going through a, a really bad ransomware attack type of threat that's been on for the last maybe the last three years, where insurers are having to pay Bitcoin right out of out of pocket, uh, and it's it's very much scaled and across the entire industry. We're now seeing things like um, supply side breaches, um, which are systemic breaches. So one of the big concerns and risks of carriers has been, okay, I have, I'm have i insuring a service provider and they have 10,000 customers. What if that service provider gets hit and each of its customers gets hit, right? So in that case, you could have a mass risk, a mass loss if you're insuring not only the service provider, but all of its customers at the same time, uh, which could really undermine and, and blow a company's book of business uh, in terms of in, uh, its insurance reserves and premiums. Um, in fact, the New York Department of Financial Services just came out with a, a notice to the insurance industry, sort of putting them on alert to make sure that they're underwriting properly and accordingly and, and also taking these systemic risks into account. Another example of that was the solar winds uh, issue that came up recently that hit many companies. And, and just last week or this week, actually, um, we heard that there's a, a potential breach around uh, Microsoft as well, and it may be affecting 30,000 uh, Microsoft uh, email servers. So uh, a, a single incident like that can really 
put a dent in the insurance industry. So I think that is what has caused the tightening of the market, the increase in the premiums, and maybe some of the less established players taking a second look and maybe not wanting to be in the game as deeply as they were before. Is there a, a regulatory component that you're tracking here as well? I mean, are, are we are we heading towards the possibility that you know certain sectors will be required to carry a certain amount of cyber insurance? It's definitely becoming increasingly standard for most every business across sectors to have cyber insurance in place whenever they're dealing with large amounts of data or consumer data. Most businesses require it under their agreements with all their um, business partners that they work with. It's becoming something that every business really should get in place. And as far as the regulatory aspects of it, what, what the regulators are focused on is what they can do to promote the stability of the cyber insurance market because of all the things that, that we mentioned earlier about it being difficult to measure these things and the market hardening recently because of things like systemic risk. Regulators are very much involved in figuring out ways that they can work with the insurance companies to um, incentivize good practices, good underwriting practices, good practices for educating their insureds about mitigating their cyber risk. And that's been their focus in recent years. We haven't seen uh, a regulation requiring cyber insurance yet in any any, um, any kind of statute. I think the drivers of it, what, what we see, any B2B type company that is handling data on behalf of its customers, those customers are not only doing their due diligence around uh, that that company's security and privacy, but they're also re- you know demanding or requiring that their vendors have cyber insurance. So there is a commercial um, incentive in many ways that is driving a lot of the purchases in the B two B realm. Um, in the public company realm, you know the SEC has been requiring more and more. A detailed reporting around cyber-related risks. And one of the factors in, in, in reporting uh, whether your uh, controls may not be adequate is, is whether the risk has been appropriately addressed uh, via cyber insurance. So again, not mandating cyber insurance, but it is a factor in whether a, a company is actually controlling its risks appropriately um, you know, in a way that you know, helps its shares, share values stay up when you're a public company. So there's been a very kind of organic uptick in the purchasing of this type of coverage. And again, the news stories and everything we hear is probably also incentivizing that and making it more of a, you know, almost a, you know, a mandatory or required type of coverage as opposed to an optional uh, coverage. I think there definitely has been a mindset change over time uh, in viewing this as something that is um, not something that's optional. I'm curious what you all are tracking in terms of thoughts in the industry about long-term viability of of cyber insurance. And I guess I'm coming at this from the point of view of, you know, could it be headed in the direction of something similar to flood insurance, where insurance companies have, have come to realize that flood insurance is not a good business to be in, so they're backed up by the federal government because the, the losses can be so disproportionate. Is there any talk in the cyber insurance uh, world that things might go that way or or is the outlook over the long term more in alignment with other types of insurance? On some level, it actually already happened. After 9-11, TRIA was passed. Uh, I think it's called it. It was the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act. 
And uh, around that time was when cyber insurance was starting to gain its foothold. And there was a realization that a terrorist event could be, of course, something that happened like in 9-11, but also could be uh, you know, shutting down the electrical grid via a cyber attack and or hitting some sort of um, key vendor, perhaps of the entire financial industry, bringing down the stock market or what have you, right? That uh, Terrorism Risk Insurance Act was intended to be um, a, a sort of a reinsurance mechanism uh, for mass losses that could arise out of a terrorist event, which I think over time, many in the cyber uh, world uh, viewed as a potential issue for a cyber event that could be tied to a terrorist type of attack. So uh, there is precedent for that type of coverage in this scenario and that type of risk transfer for you know the government being a, um, a fallback, essentially, if there is a mass type of cyber event. Now, there isn't a mechanism today in place for that. Uh, TRIA you know, is, is an older statute and and it's more limited because it requires some sort of terrorist type of event. But, you know, I could see a situation if there's a nation state actor type event happening that hits uh, a broad uh, segment of the U.S. Uh, that the U.S. government would come in to um, back up insurers to avoid, you know, insolvency and avoid, you know, the trickle down effects that could, you know, really impact the, the stock market and, and the economy on the whole. So I'm not aware of a mechanism yet that's in place and not, I'm not necessarily certain that people are talking about it in Congress or otherwise. But I, I do think there is more of a realization that some of the systemic risks and some of the nation state activity could have a much wider spread impact uh, that needs to be looked at more carefully. In terms of that realization, we are seeing the insurance carriers do various things to um, promote their long-term sustainability in their coverages that they're offering to policyholders now. Um, we're seeing quite a bit more policies being issued with higher retentions and higher deductibles, more sublimits for certain coverages. So the insurance carriers are making moves that are reflecting, you know, an effort to try to um, make this sort of product work more in the long term. But as a result, you know, policyholders are losing some aspects of their coverages. They're paying a price for that apart from increasing premiums coverages are becoming increasingly limited in some respects. All right, Ben, what do you think? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I think the insurance industry and basically all other fields over time has become so precise, as they were saying, like, we've become very good at evaluating risk in all different types of domains, auto insurance, life insurance, the actuaries there know what they're doing because they have a lot of experience. We are still mm -hmm. in a relatively early stage of cybersecurity-based insurance. And so it's going to take a while for the industry to develop where risks are being properly evaluated and insurance policies are being properly valued. So it's just really interesting to see where that's going to go as these insurance companies start to get more experience. Yeah, I think it's fascinating, too, the, the, the influence that the insurance companies can have on how people approach their cybersecurity. In other words, their ability to say, look, it's kind of like an insurance company saying to someone who puts up a new building, you got to have sprinklers, right? For if, sure. If you, want, if you want to get insurance, you got to have sprinklers and fire escapes and all that kind of stuff. These insurance companies can have the influence to, to make cybersecurity better by saying, listen, if you want us to insure us, you got to demonstrate you have all these different basic cyber hygiene things in place, and then let's have a conversation. And I think that's completely reasonable and probably, you know, good for everybody in the long run. Now, not everybody is going to be able to comply and not everybody, uh, you know, especially 
you know, some of some poor localities potentially aren't going to be able to obtain insurance. And unlike other industries, you know, like the auto industry, for example, cyber insurance is not mandatory to uh, <laughs> engage mm-hmm. in the online world. We're a long way from that. But I think, it, you know, it's an unadulterated good that the industry of insurance is encouraging people to uh, use good cyber hygiene. I think that's a really good thing. Yeah. Well, our thanks to Paul Mora and David Nevetta. Again, they are from the law firm Cooley. We appreciate them taking the time to speak with us. And now a word from our sponsor, Six Sense. Six Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With SixSense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose SixSense, visit SixSense.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>